Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of December 29th from Youth Pastor Alan Johnston. It's the end of 2019. Is that crazy? Is that hard to believe? (laughs) Depending on how you interpret what a decade actually is, it's also the end of a decade. Although I was telling my class this morning, according to Farmer's Almanac, the decade actually goes from 1 to 10. But we'll say for purposes this morning, we'll say it goes from 10 to 19, we're at the end of a decade. And, and as I was thinking through this, as I was preparing over the last few days for this sermon, I was thinking about some highlights of 2019, and some highlights of the decade maybe. Um, and with 2019, I'm not going to give a whole lot of that, but I'm a sports fan. And in 2019, we saw the Blues win the hockey uh, Stanley Cup. We saw the Raptors win the NBA championship, and we saw the Nationals win the World Series. None of those would have been expected going into the year. None of those were the favorites. In fact, they all had various um, ad- adversity in the, in the process of getting to that. We also saw the end, theoretically, of the Star Wars series. We saw the end, theoretically, of the Marvel, whatever, multiverse, um, major movies that happened this year. So I don't want to focus a lot on 2019. I do want to f- mention a few things that maybe you've forgotten about that have happened in the last decade. For instance, how many of you guys own an iPad? Those have only been around in this decade. How many of you guys remember planking, where people would just lay out on whatever, and I don't know, it was a dumb fad. That was this decade. How many of you remember a dumb YouTube video and song called Gangnam Style? <laughs> um... How many of you remember that there was a plane that vanished, a Malaysian Airlines plane that vanished? There's been two royal weddings. There's been a total solar eclipse, which was a crazy thing to experience a couple years ago. I actually had a flat tire that day, so I was stuck out on the interstate while that was happening. Um, There was a false missile warning in Hawaii. Um, The ice bucket challenge happened this decade. What color is the dress debate happened this decade? The fidget spinners came into being this decade. So there's a lot of interesting things that have happened in this decade. A lot of interesting things that have happened in 2019 as well. As we hit a new year, the the cliche thing, the easy thing to do would have been to do some kind of a sermon on, oh, how can we have a better 2020 than we had in 2019? How can we have a better decade than we did last decade? And I'm not going to do that this morning. I am going to look at a passage that's become one of my favorite passages in Scripture in Acts chapter 4, if you want to turn over there. In Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, we're going to see followers of Jesus after he died, after he was gone, after he had resurrected, coming, developing the early church and becoming these radical followers of Christ. I'm not going to use this like, this is your best advice for 2020. If I was going to do that, I would have given you all fortune cookies or something like that to illustrate that. I'm not going to do that. Um, But I am going to use it to talk about radical faith, to talk about uncensored faith, to talk about faith that can't be stopped, to talk about faith that can't be held back. So as you turn over to Acts chapter 4, I want to kind of set this up. I'll give you some background on this passage in just a minute, but I wanted to get our minds thinking because it relates to something that happens here in this passage with some things that have happened over the last few years. In 2015, a horrific video hit the internet. ISIS rounded up 21 Egyptian Christians, took them out by the ocean, told them to kneel, asked them to recant their faith, and every one of them refused, and all 21 were beheaded. 
Their heads were cut off with swords. In 2017, there were two different bombings within a few days of each other that killed 28 and 44 Christians in attacks on places of worship. And just in the last few days, in December of 2019, ISIS killed 11 Nigerian Christians. One was shot, the other 10 were beheaded. That's the world we live in outside of America a lot of times. And I'm going to reference some other similar type of things. The reason I mention that is because what happens here in Acts chapter 4 is kind of the beginning of, of the early church seeing persecution. In Acts chapter 2, there's new life. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus is gone. He, he's been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's gone back up to heaven. And the early church starts developing. There's this crazy revival where, where Peter preaches and Tons of people get saved, and then the early church starts, and they see explosive growth, and they see expansive growth, and they see dynamic worship and fellowship and teaching, and all these things start to happen. And that starts opening their eyes to the fact that there's a world in need, to the fact that they can help meet needs of other people. So in Acts chapter 3, there's a healing that takes place, a healing of a lame man, and they start seeing that God can use them, and God can spirit-infuse them to help people to meet needs and it leads to more growth but with that comes their first real opposition comes their first real persecution in Acts chapter 4 the church starts being persecuted for the first time like it or not persecution is an inevitable part of someone growing in their faith of someone living a genuine faith we don't like that idea do we we're never promised however in scripture that it's going to be easy for instance, in John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, it's because they hated him first. If they persecute you, it's because they persecuted him first. In John 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, which is really depressing, except for the rest of the story is, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. In the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So when we fuss and complain about suffering and persecution, we're not realizing that God told us that's what's going to happen. That if we're really following him, that's what's going to happen. Scripture makes that pretty clear. So in Acts chapter 4, and what we're going to read here in just a second, they're teaching, they're healing, and then they're arrested. And they're, sh they're thrown in jail by the priests, the religious leaders, the captain of the temple, who represents the police, the police chief, basically, and the Sadducees, so it's political opposition as well. These guys are all threatened by the message. They're all threatened by what's happening. They're all threatened by what they're seeing. And so the question is, how are they going to respond? When it gets hard, how are they going to respond? But the question for us is, when it gets hard, how are we going to respond? Because it will get hard. If life is always easy, and we're never being persecuted, and we're never suffering, then we're probably not living as close to Christ as we think we are. How will we respond? Will we cower in fear and back down? Or will we draw a line in the sand and say, Jesus is more to me than anything else, and I'm committed to him no matter what it costs. I'm committed to radical faith and radical commitment no matter what it costs, and I'm drawing that line in the sand, and I am not going past it. Jesus is everything to me. In Acts chapter 4, they start to be persecuted, as I said. And from this passage, we're going to talk about four characteristics of what I'm calling a radical follower of Christ, what I hope that each of us desires, what I hope that if we really love Jesus, if we really 
are committed to our faith, we desire to be this kind of believer. We desire to be this kind of follower of Christ. So let's read from Acts chapter 4. While they were speaking in the, uh, to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day because it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than, listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. Father, I thank you for this example. I thank you for the fact that they were so committed to you that not only did incredible things happen, but they stood boldly and unashamedly before you and they didn't back down and they didn't hold back. And God, I pray that we would be a people like that, that we would be a people who are so committed to you and so in love with you and so changed by the gospel and the good news of Jesus that we give our all, no matter what it takes, no matter what it costs us, no matter what else happens, that we would stand boldly and that we would realize that you have a desire to use each one of us in incredible ways as we move into a new decade and a new year. God, I pray that we would not be content to just sit in our pews and show up at church once or twice or three times a week, but that we would be this sold out to you because of Jesus and because of the gospel and because it's changed us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think what you have here is several things that we can learn from, several things that we can see that we should desire or that we should put into place in our own life, characteristics of someone who's radically, excuse me, radically following Christ. So the first characteristic of these guys, the first characteristic of a radical follower of Christ is that they're ordinary people who reflect Jesus. They're ordinary people who reflect Jesus. If you go to verse 13, it says, they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men and they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Ordinary people. They're not seminary trained guys. They're not the top celebrity speakers on some list that the magazine's putting out. They don't even have a lot of education or background. But what they did have was an encounter with Jesus that changed them. 
What they did have was a passion for Jesus, a love for Jesus, a boldness for him, a confidence because of him, a confidence through him. But they were ordinary people who God took and they reflected Jesus and he did incredible things through them. And these things are enough. This passion, this encounter with Jesus, this love for him, this boldness for him is enough. It can make up for our inadequacies. And our inadequacies often are just excuses. They're often just our insecurities popping up and becoming excuses for us to just live this comfortable life with Jesus. There's a story during the war Dwight D. Eisenhower corrected someone when they said, oh, those men are just privates. And what he said to these people was, if the war is to be won, it'll be won by those privates. This this man was trying to downgrade them. They're, They're too ordinary. They're not spectacular. They're not the sergeants and the generals and the captains. They're just privates. And he said the war will be won by just privates. The new Star Wars movie has a scene near the end, and I'll try not to give away too much, but it has a scene near the end this epic battle like all Star Wars movies have, and things are not going well, and then all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of people that show up to help with the battle. And the bad people at one point say, where did they come up with a navy like that? Where did they come up with the navy all of a sudden? And the other guy says, they're not navy, they're people. And it's ordinary people that just show up to the battle. It's not some trained, educated navy people, and they show up and they're a big part of what happens the rest of the movie. Think about in the Bible. If you were to make a Mount Rushmore of greats of the Bible, David would probably be on that, or he would be close if not on it. Definitely a top ten list. David was just a boy. David was just a shepherd. David was just a giant killer. He didn't seem like much. He didn't seem like he had much. He was just a boy. He was just a shepherd. And he became this giant killer. The fact that God used ordinary people should be comforting for us, especially if we fight insecurities, if we fight things in our own life thinking we're not enough for God. I shared this with my youth group recently, and it was probably the first time I had shared it in 20-plus years of youth ministry, and then I've also shared it a couple of times this semester in uh, speaking at CSUs at the schools. My first job in ministry before I came here, what, drew, what brought me to Russellville in the first place was I was the assistant director for one year. It's basically an internship at the Arkansas Tech Baptist Student Union, now called the BCM. And it was kind of a, a program that the state had set up where fresh out of college students would come in for nine months and work with the director and get the experience and all of that kind of stuff. And I went to Arkansas State. I didn't grow up in Russellville. I went to Arkansas State. And Arkansas State had a phenomenal BSU. The director there, Arliss Dickerson, is still to this day, he's in his 70s. He's one of the gurus of college ministry in the state and in the country. And I grew up around that. In that same BSU, there were all kinds of people that were ridiculously talented. We had awesome um, singing groups and drama groups and all of that kind of stuff. The year that I worked at the Arkansas Tech BSU as a 22, 23-year-old person, Arkansas State hired a guy who was about three or four years older than me for the same position at Arkansas State. His name was Scott Pankey. And that probably doesn't mean anything to most of you guys, but if you go to YouTube and look up Scott Pankey uh, Viral Dance, there's a YouTube video with 18 million views on it. 
Scott now teaches in Houston, Texas, Dallas, Texas, somewhere like that, and his, his class did this drama video, this, this viral video, they recorded it, and he's the cool teacher out there dancing and doing all of this kind of stuff to Uptown Funk, the song. And it's got 18 million views on YouTube. That's who I was competing with, although it wasn't a competition. But that's who I was trying to compare myself to because Scott was incredible at singing. He was incredible at drama. In fact, he was actually on a movie with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage called Face Off. And he was actually in, I was a big Dukes of Hazard fan as a kid. There was a Dukes of Hazard reunion movie that came out in the late 90s. He was in that as well. And this is who my first year of ministry I'm comparing myself to. In those first few months, I'm going, God, I can't do what I'm doing here at Tech and be like Scott Pankey because I'm not that talented. I'm not, I can't sing. Like, that's why I wasn't leading worship this morning. I can't sing like that. I can't do drama like that. And God got a hold of me in those first few months of ministry as a 22-year-old and said, you know what? I don't want you to be like Scott. I don't want you to be what he is. I don't want you to do the things that he's doing. I can take who you are and your passion for people and your love for people and your desire to help people and use that where I've placed you. And it was life-changing for me because I was comparing myself to this guy who was the man. I mean, he was a big dog. And God showed me that he could use my ordinary life that didn't have any of these things that Scott Pankey had. And he could use me in that first year of ministry, college ministry, that's where I met Tracy, but it's also where God showed me that I could do the things that he was calling me to do. I was a pretty ordinary person. In fact, to be completely honest, I was shy, which 20-something years later seems crazy to say, right? God used ordinary. God showed me that he wanted my willingness. He wanted my availability. He wanted my heart. He wanted my passion. He doesn't take us because we're special. He takes our ordinary lives and those are perfect for him when we learn to trust him, when we learn to, to use his strength, we learn to use his power. God took their ordinary lives here in Acts 4, and he will do the same for us. He created us for a purpose and with a purpose. Their lives reflected Jesus in such a way that people took notice. It says that people took notice. They wondered, uh, people wondered what they had. They wondered what was different. They wondered what made the difference in them. It says when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. I don't know exactly what that means, but I guarantee you if you really want to be a follower of Christ, you should want people to recognize that you've been with Jesus. When they see you at school and at work and out in life, do they see Jesus? When was the last time that was true about us? Do those around us notice Jesus in us? Do they know that there's something different in us? Or is, it, is church and following God just a hobby or a checklist or something on our calendar once or twice or three times a week? Do people notice that we have been with him? They noticed, and backing up to the beginning of the passage, it says while they were speaking to them, it annoyed the people because they were teaching the people all this stuff. They seized him, but it says in verse 4, many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. God took their ordinary lives because they reflected Jesus. So they were ordinary people who reflected Jesus. The second thing, they make Jesus their focal point. They make Jesus their focal point. As they stand before the, the assembly, as they stand before their trial and all of that kind of stuff, they get asked, 
Why are you doing this? What power, whose name are you doing this in? How could these guys live with such a radical faith? How could they live with such an uncensored faith? What's the root of that for them? They're not preaching rules. They're not preaching morality. They're preaching Jesus. And they're called before some of the biggest leaders of the day and asked, why are you doing that? And their clear, unambiguous, unashamed answer is Jesus. They didn't back down. They didn't hold back. They're standing in front of people who could have given them all kinds of suffering, who could have prosecuted them in all kinds of ways. And everything that they say in verses 8 through 10, he says, if we're being called in for this, let it be known by what means he was healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Jesus was the message. Jesus was the focus. Jesus was the hero. Jesus was the theme And they talk about him being the cornerstone, the first stone placed in the building, the stone that's the key to the building. Even if it's it's even slightly erroneous, the whole building has problems. And the same is true with faith matters. If the chief cornerstone, the foundation of our life, the root of our lives is anything other than Jesus, we're going to have problems. We're going to have issues. They made it clear that Jesus was the cornerstone, that he's the foundation that he's their one hope, that he's their one resurrection, that he's their one means of salvation, that he's the foundation for their faith. To answer in any other way would have been unloving. It would have been untrue. It would have been disrespectful to Jesus. It was a bold response. Remember, they're standing trial. It would have been easy to back down. It was a bold response. It was an unflinching response. They didn't hold anything back. They wouldn't back down. They didn't run away from the conflict because Jesus was more important to them than anything else. Jesus was more important to them than their freedom. Jesus was more important to them than anything they would face in that moment. And what I love about this is in verses 13 and 14, when they observe the boldness of Peter and John, I read that earlier, Since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They had nothing to say. They couldn't counter it because there was nothing, there was nothing to go against it. They saw Jesus so much, they didn't have anything to say in response. Is our focus Jesus? Is he the focal point of our lives? Is he the foundation of our lives? I've used this illustration in my youth group many times, so apologies to the kids in the youth group who've seen this. I've used it in here before, but it's worth showing again. This is an illustration I would love to take credit for, but I'm sure I got it from somewhere. Um, I don't know where it came from. But I want to show you guys something that I've used many times over the years at church camp and youth ministry and stuff like that to illustrate where's our focus, where's our foundation, Are we seeking God first and all of that kind of stuff? So what you have here is a jar of rocks. Two jars, exactly the same. Empty jar of rocks, I mean empty jar and a jar of rocks. This is a golf ball. I'm not going to hit it. You don't want to see my golf game. I'm a good athlete but not a good golfer. Put the golf ball on top. There's no tricks here. If I need to bring somebody up here to prove that, I can do that. I'm not a magician golf ball's on top, I can't close the lid. It's not going to happen. However, if I put the golf ball in there first and then put all the rocks, the same exact amount. Are there any in there, Spencer? Okay. Just so you know. 
it's closed. What's the difference? The golf ball went in first. Instead of trying to tack it on to everything else, it went in first. When Jesus is first, when Jesus is the focal point, all these other things that seem so important in our lives filter around him. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We make everything else so much more important and then try to tack Jesus onto the top of it, onto the end of it, and it doesn't work. But when he's first, it works. It's the exact same amount of stuff in here just put in it a different way. Is Jesus the focal point? Is he the center of our lives? Third characteristic, they, they chose God over men. They chose God over men. In verse 19, Peter and John answered them, saying, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen or heard. I'm going to move that so it doesn't fall off and break. They've been arrested. They've said their piece. They don't know what to do with them, and so they try to tell them in verse 15, 16, they say, what should we do with them? Let's tell them not to say anything anymore. They call for them, order them not to speak or teach at all, and they say, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. We're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Their message threatened the religious people. Their message threatened the comfortable, the status quo. The influential people didn't like it, and they had them arrested, and they put them on trial, and they were threatened, and they were accused, and they were asked to stop doing what they were doing. And they were facing jail time and persecution, and maybe even more than that, And the easy thing would have been to hold back. The easy thing would have been to let up. The easy thing would have been to stop doing what they were doing because the government said stop doing what they were doing. And they said, we can't help it. They said, we're choosing God over man. The same kind of thing happens in the Bible several other times. For example, Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Paul many times in the New Testament. They chose obedience to God over what anyone else wanted them to do. And radical, uncensored faith chooses God over man. If that were to happen to us, if this type of thing were to happen to us, how would we respond? In Acts chapter 4, they said, choose for yourselves whether it's better to obey you or God, but we can't help it. In Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, King, we can't obey you. We will trust God even if we die for it. They chose God over men. I said I would come back to some stories about persecution, and I want to do that here. On December 23rd, 2011, there was a raid on an Iranian church, a Christian church in Iran. Forty-five people were arrested, but only the pastor and two others were detained because the other 42 people signed agreements to no longer practice their faith. They were arrested, and when the persecution came, 42 of the 45 people decided to walk away from their faith and to trust their, to, to, to desire their freedom more than Jesus. In the Boxer Rebellion in China, there were 100 Chinese people arrested, and they were, told, they were taken into this room. A cross was laid across the entranceway from one room to another, and they said, if you want to be free, step on the cross, stomp on the cross, and you'll be set free. 100 people. First seven people came up there, stomped on the cross, walked to freedom. The eighth person wouldn't do that and faced death by the firing squad and took that bullet for her faith. The other 92 people followed that eighth person and did the same thing. 
and they went to their death for their faith. We think it's bad sometimes here in America because we're not a Christian country. Let's just say that. And, and it's not as easy to follow Jesus as it used to be. But we don't face these types of things. A church in Algeria a few years ago, before Christmas it was vandalized. The day after Christmas, 20 extremists burst in and threatened the worshipers. And then January 10th, burned the church down. That's what they suffered for following Jesus. That's what they faced for following Jesus. In September 2009, a Colombian pastor named Manuel was shot and killed. His wife took his body, cleaned it up, set it against a tree, and preached to anybody that would listen. And her 10-year-old son said, Mom, don't worry. Dad died for Christ, and now he is free with Christ. They chose God over man. How would we respond? Will I choose God over anything else, no matter what it costs? That's radical faith. That's uncensored faith. The last characteristic of the radical follower of Christ from, from Acts chapter 4 is this. They can't help themselves and they can't be stopped. They can't help themselves and they can't be stopped. Verse 20, again, says, For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's a line in a movie that I've, we've shown as a, a youth movie night. We've shown it as a church-wide movie night called To Save a Life. And there's a part in that movie where the main character comes to the youth pastor and he's struggling with trying to believe in Jesus and stuff like that. And he makes this statement. He says, what's the point of all of this if it doesn't change us? What's the point of all of this if it doesn't change us? Most of you guys that are here this morning are here just about every Sunday a lot of you are here Sunday nights. A lot of you are here Wednesday nights. What's the point of all of this if it doesn't change us? Does our faith change us? Does it make any difference on the Monday through Saturday of our lives? Or is it just a crutch we pull out and lean on from time to time? These guys had such a real faith that it says we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. You can't stop us. You can tell us to shut up, but we can't. It's going to spill out. It's going to leak out from us. Bob Goff is my favorite speaker I've ever heard. He's written a couple of books. He's my favorite speaker I've ever heard in any context. I've heard him twice at youth ministry conventions. And he has a saying. He said, I want to leak from having met Jesus. I want to leak from having met Jesus. Does he overflow out of our lives? Does he leak out of our lives? Have you ever had a story so good that you couldn't help but tell everybody about it? Maybe it was when you got engaged, or maybe it was when your kids were born, or maybe something exciting happened at work or whatever. You couldn't wait to tell people about it. You couldn't stop telling people about it. Kids do that all the time. They come in with stories, and half the time you're like, okay, what? <laughs> Why are we not that way with Jesus? That's how these guys were with their faith. They couldn't wait to tell someone. They couldn't stop telling someone. They refused to be shut down for anything or anyone even if their lives were on the line. They were so close to Jesus that it reflected in their lives and people saw it and then they went out and told it. They went out and shared it. Think about this. In Acts chapter 2, two chapters before this, these guys were a part of the beginning of the early church and they were a part of 3,000 people coming to know Jesus in one day. 3,000 people in one day. That's like glory, hallelujah, shout and stuff, right? By the time this happens, two chapters later, 
in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, many of those who heard the message believed and the number came to about 5,000. I don't know how many days passed in here, but it's not a real long time. They went from basically nothing to 3,000 to 5,000. There was fruit to their faith. Their faith was real and it saw results. They were so close to Jesus that it burst from them. It was unstoppable. It was irresistible. And they couldn't help themselves. Is that true of us? Are we so close to Jesus that our faith is unstoppable? That our faith overflows from us that when people see us at work they know there's something different about us they know there's something real that we have that they want to know could we see 3,000 people come to know Christ could we see 5,000 people come to know Christ do we even want that to happen I mean we'd have to build and we'd have to expand and we'd have to have multiple services and all of that oh my goodness all the logistics man praise God let's figure it out when it happens right How exciting would that be? They can't help themselves and they can't be stopped. And it begins with ordinary lives pumped in by God's extraordinary power and them living so close to him that it spills out on people and they take notice and they see that there's something different. What could God do with our uncensored faith? What kind of legacy could we leave for those who come behind us? I ran across two stories that I had seen years ago and forgotten about that I want to share, and then I'm going to have Spencer come up after that, and we're going to have a time of invitation. There was a missionary years and years ago to the Tunis in North Africa, and she struggled for years trying to reach Muslims for Christ. And she would pour into them, and they would be close, but they couldn't make that decision. And one day, a Muslim boy that she had poured into and had gotten close to was coming to say bye to her for the last time. He was going off to college in a different part of the country. And as they spent that last moment together, she just started bawling. And the tears flowed from her. And her tears broke him down to the point that he saw Jesus in her and he trusted Christ before he left. There's another story of a man named Dr. William Leslie. And in 1912, he was a missionary to a remote part of Congo, which is in Central Africa. And for 17 years, he poured himself into people in Congo, in Africa. And after 17 years, he was discouraged, and he had kind of a falling out with people, and he left discouraged, and he died nine years later, not believing he had done any good. Keep in mind, this started in 1912. In 2010, almost 100 years later, missionaries go to that same area, And they find a network of churches in each of eight villages along a 34-mile stretch that all trace back to his work in 1912. A hundred years later. And he had no idea what had happened. And he pushed through illness and hurricanes and buffaloes and leopards and ants to educate and plant churches that were still active in 2010. What kind of legacy could we leave for those that come behind us? What kind of legacy could we leave for the people of London and Pope County and our families and the people that we encounter if we couldn't help ourselves and couldn't be stopped?